My guest today is Jakob Nordengård from Sweden. And did I get your name sort of right or no? Jakob Nordengård. There you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a PhD in in technology and social change. That is uh, science and technology studies. I usually say that I'm more like a science and technology historian. So I, so I have tracked a lot about history, about climate policy, climate science, a lot about energy as well. I've written six books now, and I started with Dr. Thesis about European biofuels policy, and that took me into background of climate change and the climate change history. I have a master in geography and a master in culture and media production. And you have one or two more books coming out, right? Yes, I have six books pu- published in Swedish. And I have uh, I have one book in in English. It's it's called Rockefeller Controlling the Game, and that is about the climate change history and how uh, certain powerful actors have been involved in in making this a political issue. And uh, my latest book is this. It's called the Digitala Världsjärnan in Swedish, the Digital World Brain, and it's translated now. And uh, this covers what the United Nations are up to in order to to create a more efficient multilateral system. And one thing that is very important in in this new agenda is, of course, management of climate, management of carbon dioxide. And it's kind of disturbing history, I would say. It's just to to read this our common agenda document, and it's I think it's quite quite chilling what they are. Uh, about to to achieve this, and uh, of course it's called the digital world brain. So so it it's about the digitization of everything in order to measure people's carbon emissions and and control it in the end. Also have this book. This is the global coup d'état, and it's it's written about what happened after the pandemic declaration and uh, all the things that I go back in history and explain a lot about how they have worked with pandemic preparedness for for a long time. And we can get your yeah. books through your website, right? I checked on Amazon, and so far they're not available, at least in the U.S. Is that true? Or? Yes, you can only order them from me personally. I have I have my own company that publishes book my publishing company. I don't trust Amazon. <laughs> I've worked with Amazon and they take a lot of money from you, but you don't get that much. <laughs> and and no no personal service whatsoever. So so I try to avoid them. I mean the things that I write about is about this new digitized society and Amazon and Jeff Bezos are, are a big part of that. So I, I don't really want to to give him any more money. <laughs> my mommy. <laughs> so in preparation for this podcast, yeah. I watched this whole 54-minute video you did at the Northern Light Convention. You did a whole presentation that was fascinating about what you've found in looking at the origins of the climate scare, et cetera. Do you want to go way back kind of and start talking a little bit about that, about what you've discovered, about the origins of that stuff? Yes. This is also covered in in my book about the Rockefeller philanthropies and climate, because it was very intriguing for me to find out when I was doing research for my doctoral thesis. I didn't have that much knowledge about the history, how it had evolved. I knew about Santa Arrhenius. And uh, I mean, it's, this is a very big thing in Sweden, of course, with, I mean, Sweden and the United States has been the most influential in, in, in climate policy or climate science. And so, so I knew some things, but 
as I asked myself, I was to, to write a background chapter for my doctoral thesis about how this issue evolved. And I asked a colleague about it, and I was, I was at the time affiliated with the Climate Policy Center in, in Norrköping, Sweden, and I thought they would know <laughs> these things, but actually they didn't know that much. They knew that IPCC had formed in 1988, and, but not the background. So he, he gave me an article about that covered the more or less founding of IPCC and some very influential meetings in the 80s that were discussing the actors behind this and then what they wanted to achieve with this. And this author particularly mentioned that some of these this meetings in Villach in, in Austria, they were funded by Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Rockefeller Foundation and the German Marshall Fund. And, and that, I mean, I had for that, uh, was, I had write, written about energy, energy and oil. And so, I mean, all the history about the Standard Oil and, and, and ExxonMobil and all, all the, the Rockefeller involvement in, in, in the energy sector. So I, I found that strange. Why are they involved in that side with, with establishing climate science and, and making it, I mean, something for the United Nations to work with. So, so that t- took me back to, to analyze the background to it and then find out where did the Rockefeller Foundations start with this. And, and it took me back to the, the 50s and more or less the establishment of the, this human, I mean, the anthropogenic theory about climate. And it took me back to a meeting in 1952 about the global population. That were the, it was the founding meeting of the Population Council, uh, Rockefeller Rockefeller's Population Council. And at that meeting, where they discussed a plan for the world to to achieve control over the population growth, they had an oceanograph at that meeting called Roger Revelle. You know Roger Revelle? I have heard the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, he, he was very influential in, in, in bringing this into the scientific community and make it a, a very big issue. Together with Carl Gustav Rosby from, from Sweden, he was in, in the United States at the time, but he built a big meteorological institution at the Stockholm University, and he was very, very influential. And those two were very influential in, in, in getting the rest of the science community to look into this matter. And the Rockefeller money was there from the beginning, both for, for Roger Well, he was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, and also Carl Gustav Rosby, he was at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And that was funded by, or founded and funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And also in the 50s, Roger Well were doing a study about trace gases in the atmosphere that was released after an atomic explosion. And they wanted to know the effects on everything and he he got money from and it was the rockefeller foundation but and that's the origin of how they started this with the climate programs and everything and at the time rockefeller brothers fund 
I mean, that's the Rockefeller's second big foundation, Rockefeller Foundation. I mean, it was founded in 1913 and was very much into funding science, science and education, big universities. And the Rockefeller Brothers founded in 1940, more involved in, I would say, influencing opinion and policy. And the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, they, it was in the 50s headed by Nelson Rockefeller. He was the vice president in the, in the 1970s, of course, as Americans you know. And he had some, some big ideas in the 50s. I mean, he wanted to be a president. <laughs> and he commissioned and funded a report by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund to discuss big questions for the future. What were the big issues in the future decades? And what were the American presidential administration supposed to work with? So he put up a brain trust with headed by Henry Kissinger. And Henry Kissinger, with, together with a lot of very bright people at that time, and they discussed how, more or less, how can we get this idea with internationalism to thrive? How can we make United Nations to get more power, more or less? And in that context, climate was discussed. Climate and, and health, I would say. Climate, climate change and, and global health. Because these were problems. Problems could come out of climate and health that were going across the borders. So that meant that it needed international cooperation to deal with these problems. So they stated in, in this report that came out of this, it's called the Special Studies Project, that climate could evolve in that direction. And that was more or less a start of a, of a more focused work from Rockefeller Foundation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, to, to, to make this both the health issue and the climate issue to, to be of, of international concern. And first they wanted to, to get funding for the climate science that talked about human influencing climate. And, and that was a, a work that they did until the Stockholm Conference on the Environment in 1972. Do you think the motivation from the start was power? I studied the annual reports from both the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Rockefeller Foundation. And, and what motivated them at that time, what we talked about, was control of the population control and, and also control over the resources. Of course, that is a, is a power thing to in order to, to control these things. I mean, and it's more or less everything, the resources, the environment, and, and the people. So, of course, it is it's a, it's a big... I mean, and if you go back to, to where, where they came from, I mean, the, the, the Standard Oil Company... But what I mean, it was more or less the, the, the first big multinational corporation in the world. So they were very interesting in, in the resources of the world, of course. And so, 
so United Nations and internationalism and everything was it was good for their view of the world and thinking and for their business I would say I'm curious because it sounds like they were going to be selling CO2 induced global warming but then in, as it was cooling from the 40s to the 70s I think Stephen Schneider wrote a paper blaming fossil fuels for global cooling I don't know if there was a shift briefly into global cooling and trying to blame humans for that or did you notice that in your research? Yeah, the interesting thing is, I mean, they, they worked with this as well. If you look into, to, they, they talked about climate and um, climate changes that could, uh, where humans were responsible. So they actually had in 19, I think 1970, 1971, they, they, it was two reports released that were funded by one of them from Rockefeller Foundation. And they, it was called a study of mankind, man's impact on the climate, a very influential report at the time. And, and it was done because of the Stockholm conference in 1972. And at that meeting they had in, it was outside Stockholm in Sweden, they had a lot of these scientists had met and they had a, a purpose and that was to, to find small effects that humans could affect on climate and the environment. So, so that was the start of it. And it evolved into two main, main schools, one can say. One said, we influence the climate through carbon dioxide and fossil fuel combustion. And the, the second was we influenced the climate through releasing aerosols from the combustion of fossil fuels. So either way, it, it was humans responsible. And then they decided after a couple of years in the, the, the 70s that now we know that it, it's carbon dioxide that's the driver of, of the climate change. Do you think if it starts cooling again for 30 years, they're going to say, just kidding, it really is aerosols? <laughs> Do you think? Yeah, we're, we're going to blame <laughs> blame us for, for it, whatever we do, <laughs> I think. There's so many things going on with bad weather that if they can blame bad weather on humans or blame it on people they don't like and make money, it does seem like it's not working to some extent so far anyway. Yeah, yeah, of course. And weather is every everyone is affected by bad weather. So, so I mean, it's it's very uh, and people likes to talk about that weather as well. I mean, that's that's a small talk about the weather. So, so I mean, that was a very smart thing to do to actually choose this as the the big issue. So do you have more specifics you want to go through after the 1970s that we should know about? So I followed this from the 70s as well. And, and I mean, they, they had this meeting in, in Stockholm. And I mean, this was run by the general secretary, Maurice Strong, also kind of very tight with the Rockefeller Network. He was, a, 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 he was a, at the board of directors for Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, we, we find them, well, I found them everywhere in the, the policy process, but, to, but from, from the 50s until IPCC was founded in, in 1988. And as I mentioned in the beginning, they were funding these meetings leading up to IPCC. And uh, a lot of these influential 
climate scientist got their funding from them. So I, and I have a I have a, a, a very interesting things about the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, how they acted in the the eighties and trying. They wanted to when the Brundtland Commission was started. They wanted Brundtland Commission, of course, is is what was led up to to the Agenda Twenty One, the background for it. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund wanted the climate to be a part of the Brundtland Commission. So they they had a meeting and discussed this, and they actually had one of the the author of chapter about energy was funded by them, Gordon Goodman. He was at a, an institute called the Bayer Institute in Sweden. And they more or less commissioned him to, to write about energy and climate and put it into the Brundtland Commission report. And they also gave money to this commission directly. So they were very, very involved in, in this and and afterwards, of course, they were involved in both sides uh, of the climate debate when the IPCC had been founded. We found ExxonMobil, or uh, was it just Exxon at the time? They were in this climate, the global climate coalition, and uh, that were skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> and it was led, uh, interestingly enough, one, one of the, the, the main skeptics at the time was Frederick Seitz. You know, Frederick Seitz. Yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 he was very famous. And he was actually from the Rockefeller Network. So he, I mean, he was the, the, the president of the Rockefeller University. So, so it's very interesting to see. But one of the, the main characters that were against this and talked about this is bad science, he was from the, the Rockefeller Network. And he actually got got some, some prize from, from David Rockefeller. And... On the other side, they gave a lot of uh, of money from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund to to influence opinion about climate. So, playing both sides. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, Exxon abandoned climate realism at some point. Do you know roughly what year they, they stopped funding climate realists? I think it was, I mean, in the beginning of the 2000s, this coalition, I think they were disbanded shortly after the Johannesburg environmental meeting in 2002. And then they all got on board with this, more or less, the, the big oil companies. But there's this fable to this day that climate realists like me must be funded by Exxon. But that story <laughs> is 20 years old now, I guess. Huh? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I mean, I when I was when I was doing my doctor thesis, I, I made a study about how much money do Exxon give to to skeptical organizations or scientists compared to what they give to, I mean, <laughs> those who so who follow the consensus line. I mean, it, it was, I mean, so. So, so tiny fraction that actually went to 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 people that had something critical to say, and it's easy, easy to check out. But I mean, these things people are kind of lazy. I think they they, yes. they don't uh, tend to to look into things. They they just watch the television news and then it's decided for them. 
One interesting thing for me is I've been following this debate kind of daily for like 16 years or so now. And it does seem like IPCC reports when they were released, it was a much bigger deal in the past than now because they just released one maybe Monday or so. And I saw people on Twitter complaining that it was on the front page for like four or five hours on some websites and then people forgot about it. They're, they're already forgetting about the stuff that happened on Monday. Do you think that's true, that people care less about what the IPCC says now than they did maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, they have just repeated the same formula for a very long time. I mean, it works very good the first time, but if you do it too often, it, it people will just, okay, I've heard this before. Okay, it's still 10 years. <laughs> If I if I talk to to my old colleagues at the university, they still believe it. It's, that's the people that that always think it's too late. We have to do something now and 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 ask for tough measures for this. But ordinary people, I don't think they are really impressed, and they can now see what has happened with fuel prices and everything, and and what has happened with the big wind parks and and everything. And the energy system in Sweden that is, <clears throat> was one of the best in the world, but that they have kind of crippled it and made it worse. And they made us dependent instead of independent. Okay. I was going to ask you about that, about what's happening in Sweden. Do you think they've kind of reached the peak of renewables or do you think realism is going to come back there in terms of how they're powering the country? Or are they going to experience blackouts as they get rid of more and more reliable power? I think in some some way we will see more realism um, because of this. What has happened with uh, Ukraine Russia conflict and and what has how it has affected the European energy market. So so a lot of people are starting to ask questions. I mean the, the energy prices went through the roof and and a lot of people got problems with this. And I think quite a few of them think that this wind power. Surge has something to do with this, and I mean, they, they, I mean, they, they also shut down some of the nuclear power plants in Sweden. I think we have some realism coming. Yeah, but but the problem is that we have in those who run things. <laughs> before we had, I mean, the, the energy authority. The, I mean, the big, the big, we we'll say. And energy companies and everything and all that has had knowledge about energy. They decided like 15 years ago that we need new people that run things. We They threw away all the experienced old men because they are not in line with the, the policies and, and, uh, and they, they saw the problems with, with building this new energy system and, and what, what would happen. So, so they have put a lot of young women in charge of, of, of these companies and everything. I mean, you have to have a woman today. And there's nothing wrong with the woman, of course, but it was it's often inexperienced and and that has come from universities and, and and they have been more or less indoctrinated with certain things 
and messages about the climate and, and everything. And they have the wishful thinking of how things will work. We just have to, to remove all the fossil fuels and put this wind power and solar and everything. And, and everything will be like paradise. That's not, that's not reality, of course. So uh, what, I think we will have a realistic, more realism now. What is your view locally? What do people think about Greta? Are they big fans in general? And also, what do they think of her protesting against wind power? I thought that was an interesting story recently. That's the same thing as the more you are uh, educated or I would say indoctrinated, the more you like Greta. And But among uh, ordinary people that uh, drive to, to their job every day, um, I don't think that they are that impressed by, by Greta. Even uh, among young people, they don't care that much as they did. They, they, I mean, they want to give an impression of that young people, they are so caring about the climate, it's so important for them. No, I don't think they, they really care. Young people today are more interested in TikTok and I mean, getting clicks and being on YouTube than, than actually being outdoors and, and be afraid of the climate. You, you don't happen to know what's going on with Greta's protests. I wonder if she just shows up and takes a picture with five people and then they all go home. Are they, They're not actually protesting standing out in the cold for hours on end in Stockholm every Friday. Do, do you know? I think she did that in the beginning. Yeah, that was important at that time, yes, to 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 be able to follow her and then get all these good pictures and and, and everything. But now she, I think she's more doing, as you said, she has a press team with her and and they take pictures and they go home. I have one old article about Greta, and it's also included in in my book, The Global Coup d'État. So I followed the, the background to, to Greta and how it began and how they more or less wanted, they wanted this young girl to, to lead this climate movement and this climate strikes. And, and actually it began with a meeting in 2015 in Germany, in Tunza, where they, it was a lot of club of rome people involved as always you found rockefeller foundation and you found the club of rome very very influential in this but it was a, a united nations that arranged this and they also had this uh, this organization called plant for plant for plant for forest or something like that it's affiliated with the club of rome and at this meeting, they, they, they discussed how can, how can we make climate more um, interesting for young people? And uh, how can we bring more people to react on this? So, so they, they had, had some ideas. They wanted to, to uh, some suggested we need to, to make something like a climate strike. So, so we had a session about this in 1950, 2015. And, okay. yeah, and in 2018, they found uh, Greta Thunberg. They found her as a mascot. It kind of they were searching for a mascot, something like that. Yeah, we're searching, and and uh, I mean Greta Thunberg. She's her parents are are famous in Sweden. It's um, uh, Malena Anman. She's an opera singer, and her, her husband is is uh, an actor, and they are also 
are also related to to Santa Arrhenius. And that's <laughs> it's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and they, and and, and uh, the mother, she was involved in in environmentalism and and and, and trying to raise opinion for this, and I was writing a book about how Greta, her daughter, was very upset about the climate and was depressed because of the climate, and and so. She was kind of, I mean, was she? She was the the, the daughter of of a famous person in Sweden, so that made it very easy to to bring her out and make her a big star. So, is it true that uh, Greta's mom's book was in bookstores something like four days after Greta's spontaneous strike? Yes, I mean it. It was kind of a, of a campaign, I would say, <laughs> and also they had this film team. A film team that happened to just Dubai, where Greta was making her climate strike. And they said, oh, we have to do a, a documentary because we just saw Greta. And <laughs> of course, that, these things just don't happen. I mean, so and they, they followed her from the first day, more or less. Was that, okay, the film team just stumbled upon her allegedly. And then this uh, Renshaw guy also just walked by there. Also, that uh, Renshaw was, I think, before. Before, yeah. yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's any move to replace Greta with a Sofia Kiani that suddenly is everywhere at the UN, etc., as the new face of the youth climate? It might be so. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, Greta gets older, and they want young people all the time. Because that's very important for, for the United Nations agenda as well. They talk a lot about young people and, and even people that are not born yet. And that's, that's, a, that's a big part of it. Um, they actually released a, a policy brief a couple of weeks ago that talked about we, we must save future generations. So, so we, we, it's not just uh, young people that are like, I mean, Greta, was she 15 when she was uh, got into this? But even even people were not yet born. Interesting. <laughs> so, so what do you see happening over the next maybe twenty years or so with the climate hysteria? Do you think something else is going to take its place, or what do you think? The thing is that the climate is a backbone in in the new agenda, the new our common agenda, as it's United Nations calls it. So, so is. So it's very it's not that easy to just to replace this with another another issue other issue. This this is the thing. So so if uh, the climate change issue falls, everything falls. I would say it's so important. I mean, they have all a lot of other global issues that the United Nations work with, of course, and one one of these are global health, and we have some some other issues as well, of course. But climate is uh, so, they have worked so much with this. And then, I mean, it's it's like, it's it's not, not supposed to be a discussion about it anymore. It's, it's supposed to be something that people take for granted. It's just the way it is. And, and maybe, I mean, young people, don't, they don't care uh, about these things. But if you ask them, they will say, oh, yeah, man, it's, it's the humans that drive climate. Because they know, but but it's not it's not a big issue for them. 
So what should we be doing differently in fighting back against the climate scam? Do you have any advice for, for, for me or anybody else out here when we're trying to fight it? Um, the thing is, a lot of, I mean, I know, know a lot of these old professors in Sweden that has, was not happy with, with how IPCC came and took over and how it evolved and they, they couldn't discuss climate as we did. And, and they, they have stuck to, to showing diagrams and how the climate works. I mean, you can see this, this and, uh, and they, they point and they are very nerdish with explaining. And they think, if I only explain this thoroughly, people will understand. No, they don't. They don't understand because the other side has decided it is this way and they won't get, get any airtime at all. It is a, it's a big agenda behind it and people have to know that. So what I've been doing is to expose the agenda behind mm -hmm. who is driving this, what are they want to, to achieve this, what are they stating and what are the measures that they want to, to, to use. And... And that is scary. And I, and I think that is the thing, to, to expose how this new system is supposed to work. Because, and, and also how counterproductive it is. It is I mean, they want to, to build this new, I mean, digital system where everything should be connected with everything and you should you're supposed to measure everything you do in in carbon dioxide and you have to to build this infrastructure with all these servers and and satellites and uh, uh, sensors and, and 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 it's so you have to think how much energy do you need to build this system and, and support the system in order to, to measure carbon dioxide activity. <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> so, so, and I think we have to, to show how stupid this. Can you share any specifics about what you think about in 2023? Who is driving this, driving us towards central bank digital currency? Like, uh, is it Bill Gates, the WEF, the UN? I, I, what does Exxon want to get out of this? Or can you talk in any way about who's behind it and what do they want right now? Well, what, what I have, I mean, what I've been studying and, and that's what I was talking about in, in, this, in this lecture I had in, in Malmö. It was the, the influence of the World Economic Forum, of course. Yeah because they have became very influential and they are have these working groups that talks about central bank digital currency. And they have a partnership with the United Nations mm -hmm. since 2019, they, they where they will help the United Nations to achieve Agenda 2030. And the climate change agenda, the health agenda, the digitization and everything. And if you look into the World Economic Forum, you find, of course, the big financial institutions. You find the, the central bankers. They are all in, in this. And they this, this is the, the way to implement this new system. And, uh, and it, it was kind of surprising for me at, at the beginning because I wrote about, I mean, 
European biofuel policy in my doctoral thesis, and it was it was done in I defended it in 2012, and I mentioned World Economic Forum one time in this thesis. So I didn't have an idea about how big this was. And at the time, you didn't know, because they more or less made the, an appearance of the international stage as more influential. I mean, before it was the, the big meeting, annual meeting, of course, every in Davos, educated people know about this meeting, of course. But, but the organization that they had built up and the working groups and everything, I mean, that came came into light in, in I would say, after the, the Paris Agreement in 2015. When World Economic Forum's chairman, Klaus Schwab, at the same day as they, they signed the, the, the document and said, now we have the agreement, he had an article in Foreign Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations publication, where he declared, now the time has come for the fourth industrial revolution. So the same day and the year after we, he proclaimed this at Davos meeting. And that's when I kind of, I did, kind of didn't know about Klaus Schwab before that, but that was oh shit, because I, I had seen these things before with how we would use technology to, to, uh, to, to steer the world in a sustainable direction. But this made it more, uh, they were the vehicle, they were visible, and then they, they had always set up all these working groups, everyone, every big corporation. And of course, you find the oil industry in, in World Economic Forum as well. You find ExxonMobil in, in the Council of Foreign Relations as, as one of the, the most important funders. And, and so, so they are there and, and working for this. And they say this is, I mean, it's an, the United Nations talk about creating effective multilateralism and, and that's what the World Economic Forum stands for as well. And I would say that is before we have had a world order that were headed by the United States since the Cold War ended. And, uh, and now they are preparing for, for this new system that will come after this. That is built on, I mean, all the big multinational corporations that, I mean, they... they they don't want borders. They want a borderless world and they want to be on board and influence directly a new strengthened United Nations that are more effective. And it's just to read this. And, and that's one thing that I, that I think it's important to do. Hardly anyone know about this report, our common agenda. And I, and that it's very easy. I mean, it's just to, to look into a United Nations webpage and, and download it. And because I think it's very important to, to do that and understand what they want to achieve. I mean, this is no conspiracy theory. It's, it's just how we see on the world and how they want a more efficiently manage the world and, and more or less get rid of these old ways of doing things, the, the old capitalist system. Now they want another system that overrides this. 
So from your perspective, do you think there's been some sort of a great awakening happening? Or it seems like from my perspective, there is. There's a lot of stuff that I believed three years ago that I don't anymore. I feel like I didn't know anything about the WEF until recently. Are people more receptive to your work now than they were three years ago? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, when I, when I Dr. Thesis came out in 2012, and I actually wrote a, a paper in 2009 that talked about this, uh, how this climate issue evolved and everything. It was very few people that I could discuss it with. It was a some, few, some people at the university, one or two at my university, and old professors from the, that had been into working with climate science. And, and engineers and people that know a lot about energy and have a special knowledge and also people that were into trading because these people know, I mean, trading shares and, 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 and they know how business works and how dirty this game is. So, so they read my, my, my stuff. And, uh, but some, when, when the pandemic was declared in 2020, uh, a lot of interest because I had written about World Economic Forum before. My book about the Rockefellers came out in 2019. And so I had, I knew all the things. I had documented everything and also documented the thinking of a new system that would, would come after the, the old one broke down, would break down. And when this happened, I got a lot of new readers and uh, I also released my new book about the global coup d'etat. That's about more or less the, the fusion of the uh, United Nations and the World Economic Forum and the partnership and how it affects the world. And, and uh, I also got, I, I remember my, my release of the, the Rockefeller book. It was, was a lot of men, old men, <laughs> a few women. And then a year after, when I released my new book, it was more women than men that uh, was interesting in my work. And that's because I was talking about health, and health is more interesting for women. And I, climate and then the resources is a more male question, I think. Okay. When I talked about health and, and how this uh, the management of the pandemic and, and those things, I mean, and I mean, it's it's a, it's a very much a one women's issue with, I mean, they work in in hospitals, <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. So, so, so of course that became a big thing for for women that started to to look into how things actually work, and uh, of course a lot of new men, of course, came and, and bought this and wanted to know. Do you use the term red pilled at all to talk about people starting to learn about your work, or what, is there a term that you would use when people learn more and more about what you're doing? No, I wouldn't say that I, I yeah. use a red pill myself, oh. but I know, oh. I know about it. Do you have thoughts on what's happening with the banking crisis? Or do you think we're going to get a global central bank digital currency in the next 10 years? Any, any thoughts on that? I know they want to, to us to have it. Uh, and I think is we have, we have some time before this, and we don't know exactly what will happen. But I know for one thing that those people that have, have that power over the banks today, they think that central bank digital currency is the way that we, it's the way we have to run the, the society in the future. So, so if we don't uh, start to actually protest against this, 
and, and act. We will have a central bank digital currency and social credits within 10 years. And the reason we have to have social credits is to prevent CO2 induced bad weather, right? That's one of the biggest reasons. Yeah, yeah, it is, <laughs> of course. So, I mean, every purchase you, you do is, is, uh, is about how much carbon dioxide has uh, may have been, may have been, yeah, it's coming from uh, the production of this. And then, so, so it's, it's, they measure everything in carbon dioxide. So, okay. so that's a, a big part of the system. This has been a great conversation. Do you have any other points you'd like to make before we start to wrap up? I think I've, I've said the, the important things I wanted to say. It was just this, our common agenda report. I think that's very important to, for, for people to, to look into. And more, more people than I and a few others should really do dig into this and understand what it is. Okay, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this, and I hope you can come on again if you have some more time. Yeah, thank you. It was a really pleasant discussion. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah.